0: Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world to hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gears, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockton Cyclery for supporting bike pack adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on peddling. Hey there everyone, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. Uh it has been a little bit since the last episode came out. I do apologize for that. Um I just gotta get focused, I guess. And not enough time in the day, new dog, everything's going on here, so um hoping to keep rolling out the episodes, try for more often. It's the long term goals, short term goal as well. And um yeah, just keep producing good content. Anyways, before the intro to the podcast and before the start of the podcast, there are a couple announcements. One of them I talked about previously, and that is a friend of mine, Dan Hurd, who recently was involved in a car accident in the US in which his trailer was completely destroyed. He was nearly destroyed, broke his tailbone seriously damaged his knees. It's going to take some while, some rehab. Um, and he's been on a mission to promote suicide awareness, particularly with vets, but actually with, within all aspects of life in the US. And and he's been partnered up with a Canadian company called Living Works. And what he's been doing through his fundraising for the One Pedal at a Time movement is raising money to put back into to helping people. And one of the ways he wants to do this is by offering five free courses for the Living Works suicide awareness pr- or suicide prevention program. So I'm going to read what he sent me and then I'll provide some more details. So it's a groundbreaking new way to learn suicide prevention skills. In just one hour online, Living Works teaches trainees to recognize when someone is thinking about suicide and connect them to help and support. You'll learn a powerful four-step model to keep someone safe from suicide. You'll have the chance to practice it with impactful simulations. Visit opatmovement.com and livingworks.net for more information. Now, here's the deal. You can email Dan at opatm at gmail.com. That's O-P-A-A-T-M at gmail.com. And use the code BTA for Bike Tour Adventures. And he'll just connect you. And they'll send you, Living Works will send you a link you click it, you have six weeks to use it and it's a free course. So I've actually taken it and that's why I'm talking about it. I'm a teacher. I've had situations in the past where kids were suicidal and I thought, Hey, you know what? This is really cool. This is a great way for me to get a little bit more in depth into this field and just be aware. And I started the course. I haven't finished it yet. To be honest, I'd say it's more than an hour, probably close to an hour and a half, two hours to get it all done. But I'm pretty much halfway through. Just got to find some time to finish it up. And it's really great. It does provide a four-step way of identifying, recognizing, addressing, and connecting people to, to the necessary help that you might need. And you could save someone's life. So it's really cool. And if you're interested in it, email opatm at gmail.com and use the code BTA or shoot me an email at info at adventures.com And I will forward that to Dan if that works better for you. The next piece of news for you guys is a friend of mine, Victor Zicho. He was a previous guest of the show and he rode a recumbent bike all the way to India through the mountains of Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan. A fascinating story. We covered some of it in the podcast and he's produced a lot more into his book called In the Footsteps of Alexander Soma, C-S-O-M-A. And this is an, a historical figure from Hungary who was an explorer and had explored this area, I mean, I'm not going to guess how many hundreds of years ago, I forget. But he was following this guy's general route and that's why he made a couple, you know, illegal turns here and there. And um, so this book is coming out on November 17th in English. So he's already, I believe, produced it in Hungarian and a lot of people have been asking him and he just asked me if I could do a shout out. And I thought, you know what, why not? I really liked Victor. I liked his story. I liked his adventure. And, um, you know, it's, it's what I'm here for. So uh, if you're interested in another book on biking, I mean, we can never have enough. Check it out in the footsteps of Alexander Soma, And that's coming out November 17th. And now for the show. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike touring, get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, and learn the pros and cons of certain gear, bikes, and bike setups. I hope you enjoy this podcast and that my guest stories fill your journeys with hours of listening. If you're new to the bike touring scene and considering going on a tour, I hope this podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. In the meantime, enjoy the show. In episode 41 of Bike Tour Adventures, I speak with Claudine Desiree. As a practitioner of sustainable housing development, Claudine has used cycle touring as a sustainable means of traveling between her destinations while leading cob building workshops around the globe. I first heard about Claudine from my friend Derek when he attended one of her workshops in the US and put us in touch with one another. It's with great pleasure that I get a chance to speak with Claudine and I hope you enjoy the episode. Claudine, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Chris. I'm really honored that you want to interview me, because I feel like uh, I have a lot to say.
0: (laughs) I love people that have lots to say. So let's start off. I I usually start off asking people just to tell me about themselves so that listeners can, can get a good judge of you know the person in general. So why don't you tell us about who you are?
1: Okay, well, I was born on March 20th, 1964, in New York City, in Manhattan um on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> nice. And um I was born to two um Jewish uh immigrants from Europe. Um, you know, during like the World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh not during. They, well they came over, yes, during World War Two. My dad was seven and my mother uh was eighteen and they came over to the States, fled uh Europe and the Nazis. And, um, and they, uh, ended up meeting in New York city and that's where I was born shortly thereafter. Um, so I was raised in in a tall building, you know, on the 22nd floor, (laughs) um, and went to school a little bit outside of New York in a place called Riverdale. Um, so I got some good fresh air and exercise and everything, but it wasn't until I went to college in Berkeley, California that I started really getting into nature and camping and, uh, bike touring. Cause I, uh, every time I would, you know, um, travel somewhere, I would bring my bike and yeah, I'm a, I'm very athletic. Um, I, I love, I love the whole idea of getting exercise while you're traveling You know, (laughs) um, and I also love the whole idea of going traveling slowly because you really see, you smell, you touch, you notice Mm -hmm. things that you would never by train, by car, you know, like just finding cool stuff along the side of the road and, you know, things that people that have flown out of cars or Mm -hmm. a little coconut stand or, you know meeting people you you know you're a bike traveler yep. so the the opportunities are just amazing for getting to know people and a country and um and seeing the land you know firsthand mm-hmm. and oh, fantastic I and i think
0: it. yeah i think i think people is a big one too because a lot of times the most interesting people you'll meet are in these small communities that you would just bypass if you were in a car you would never stop but when you're on a bike you're You're going slow, and you're like, oh, have a little break, get a coffee, whatever it might be, and yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Or like you know, like in Brazil, you know that this they were selling coconuts along the side of the road constantly, and fruits like whatever they had locally growing. So I got to, you know, I was so thirsty because when I was going through Brazil, you know, it was it was hot. I mean, it wasn't terribly hot, but like the coconuts were like Mm ten cents. A fresh coconut that in the States, you'd have to pay like, you know, two or three dollars for yeah. a plantation coconut that has been, you know, imported from Indonesia at, at the cost of, you know, their forests. Um, and here, you know, I'm going to Brazil having like five coconuts a day for 50 cents. And it's the real thing, you know. Yeah wild coconut,
0: yeah. Yeah, I used to do the same in Malaysia, was just um, get them to pour it right in your bot- water bottles and just have, like, yeah. natural isotonic, you know? Coconut's so good for you.
1: Yeah. No cans, no, exactly. like, preservatives. Yeah. That's the best, is those little, those are the things that, you know, make it all so great, like all the little perks, mm-hmm. you know? Of,
0: of so what, were, what were some of your early travel experiences i guess that uh with bikes or or backpacking um
1: like the one i guess the earliest i remember uh is when i was living in france for a year during uh university i went Mm -hmm. abroad uh on my own to france for a year and i mean i've always been an athletic person but that i think that was the beginning of of um of traveling and seeing by bike and I actually Mm -hmm. had a cat and I would I would put my cat in the back in a basket and travel with my cat because I couldn't leave it alone and I just thought it would be cool (laughs) and I was in the south of France so I I would just do weekend trips you know I'd Mm -hmm. go to Avignon and Orange and uh um Nice and you know I was I was living in aix-en-provence so i love was...
0: i love aix-en-provence i was there in 2007 i think it was great what a what a wonderful town
1: yeah and, the, and it's so beautiful provence mm-hmm. for traveling by bike you know the smells the lavender and you know there's so much produce and yeah. you know good food um and the, the weather's good and it's and another thing is you know traveling by bike as you know it's like it's just so cheap because you can just, you pull off the road and, you know, you just find like a little, a little nook, a little bush. Mm-hmm. And you just go behind the bush and you camp and you leave early the next morning and, you know, you're, you're traveling for free.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, um, so your early days, is that where you learned your French was in, when you were in France for a year?
1: No, my parents, uh, spoke French. Uh, so my dad is, was French. Oh, okay. he's. he's Not with us anymore. And my mom. uh, So my dad was French, Belgian, and my mom was Romanian, Romanian via Morocco, where her parents first fled to Morocco. And so she spoke French because she lived in Tangier and Tangier French and Spanish Mm -hmm. and Arabic. Yeah.
0: You know, Morocco. Yeah, I've been. I love it. I haven't, biked, biked I haven't biked there. I was, uh, just backpacking in 2007. That was like my first big European trip. And I, I popped over across the, the straits to Morocco to Tangier. Uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, it was good. That was my early days.
1: Those, those were your early days. <laughs> Biking to Morocco were my late days.
0: <laughs> nice. But, um, so you're, yeah. Um, so from what I understand is um, maybe you could tell us actually a little bit about Cobb building because I think this is a, it's a big part of your life. And I think this will lay a good foundation for for who you are to, to listeners.
1: Well, thank you for asking. Um, I am Cobb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm known in Santa Cruz as the Cobb Queen. Um, Santa Cruz is, is where I lived for 20 years, raising my three uh, sons half the time by myself, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, low income, I came from New York City from a pretty, not very wealthy, but you know, pretty, pretty like comfortable middle, middle upper class family. And Mm -hmm. I went completely the other direction. I wanted to live like simple, basic, earthy, sustainable, you know, vegetarian, organic, like all that good stuff that you learn in California. <laughs> and I ended up, um, I ended up living in a, a house made out of old street cars from the 1920s. That that was the cheapest house I could buy in Santa Cruz, um, which I then sold, like you know, after 20 years for like three times more. Um, but that's typical in in Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. So I lived in Santa Cruz for 20 years, and there I learned about permaculture and natural building and gray water systems and everything about sustainability. Like, you know, I'm in Aries and Aries like to be like independent and, and, uh, you know, off the grid okay. and be able to live kind of like raw and down to earth and, you know, caveman style, mm-hmm. cave woman's But, uh, I learned all that in California and I went to a natural building cob workshop Actually, I went to a permaculture design course and I saw a cob house, and I'm like, "What is this? This, I want to do this. This is me. This is it." And um, and so I went to a a cob workshop with Michael Smith, who's like one of the top cobbers in the world. Okay. And um, and I learned, and then I went back to my my little plot in downtown Santa Cruz, where I was needing more space because I was living in a tiny house with three boys. And I started building my Cobb studio and shortly thereafter I started teaching and, you know, probably about 20 years of 15 years of, of teaching Cobb and also teaching languages and, um, teaching geography and yoga and mm-hmm. meditation and massage. And, you know, I had like this kind of multifaceted life, which is how I like it, you know, cause I get, I can't just do one thing. And, and then after my kids were all done with high school and, and like, you know, adults and on their own, I said, okay, now it's my turn, you know, cause I was a single mom for all those, a lot of those mm-hmm. years. Um, and I, and I sold my place and I bought a really cool bike called the bike Friday.
0: Oh, I have, a, I have bike. a bike Friday. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that was my first touring bike i guess uh, i have now i have a gravel bike as well i tour with but yeah i have i toured on a bike friday
1: what's it called a gravel bike Oh, like
0: a gravel bike it's like a road bike that can take slightly bigger tires and has mounts to put bags on and stuff so
1: oh you like, call it a gravel bike
0: they call it yeah for like yeah gravel riding on gravel <laughs> but my touring bike is a bike friday tell us more about your bike friday i love bike fridays
1: yeah i just thought I mean, I, I just sold my house and I'm like, I, I'm just going to get a cool bike, you know? And I started researching and I liked the advantages of the foldability of the mm-hmm. bike and the fact, the whole idea of like, ah, oh, you can put it in the little suitcase and then the suitcase becomes your trailer. But I ended up returning the suitcase and the trailer and opted for just carrying everything on my bike. Um, so I had this red foldable bike Friday that was, you know, tailor made for me, which is how they do it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I had a rack on it, a really, a a really good old mountain man rack or something. And, you know, the typical bags, um, Ortlieb bags on the back and the front and Mm -hmm. the Ortlieb like little handlebar bag. And, and then I just uh, packed it all up uh, into, you know, I bought the bike Friday to save money on traveling, by plane with the bike but i ended up you know just paying for the bike uh, most of the time um except amazingly enough the place where i now live and ended up settling down the azores they don't charge for bicycles from the mainland of europe to fly so that's like the only airline in all these i think that doesn't charge is uh, azores airlines
0: yeah, but I guess I like it. you could you could pack it into it's. I mean, I've packed mine into a suitcase, and it it takes time and patience, and definitely easier to put it in a bike box if you. Uh, yeah. If it's not going to cost so a fortune.
1: Easy. So easy.
0: Um, is yours a so new I, world? Is yours a new world tourist or a different one? Yeah. Yeah, yours. Yeah, yeah that's what mine is too.
1: I don't have it anymore. I mm. sold it.
0: Okay, that happens. <laughs> so um,
1: I I really I liked it, but the the little wheels. Like I liked it and I and it's so strong and it never had one flat tire, never had one problem. Um but I got tired of like for a while I was riding with my sons and they had mm-hmm. normal wheels and you know, for every rotation of theirs I was doing two or three, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I was uh uh-huh. <laughs> Yep. So I got tired. Like I remember going up the Pyrenees and these guys, you know, the French love their Sunday morning bike rides and all these, you know, guys on their racing bikes are just whizzing by me, looking at me. And I just started feeling like I am working so much harder than everyone else. <laughs> um,
0: the, so I, ended up getting, I found my bike Friday climbs pretty well. Like I used it in Northern Thailand and, but I didn't have so much weight on it either. Where some, uh, you know, normal bike tours have quite a bit of weight on their bikes with their bags, and mine were pretty light. So I climbed relatively easily. But yeah, that could be because of the weight.
1: Yeah, I had a lot of weight. I, I mean, obviously the Bike Friday limited me. But it, you know, I'll send you a picture like of my the beginning of my mm-hmm. tour. Was my bike was? I had a hard time going light, you know, because I was I was working too. I would, I would, I had to carry some stuff for my job. Mm-hmm.
0: For that was one of my, yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to ask is, uh, do you have to carry some like specific tools or things, you know, that uh, you need for the work?
1: Yeah, I carried a little level. I carried my work gloves. I carried a, a, a projector, which was still small. It was a handheld projector, but I had my computer mm-hmm. um, and, uh my the biggest thing were my posters cuz i teach with posters i make these beautiful colorful posters and they were heavy so sometimes i carried them in tubes you know mm-hmm. but i had to protect them from the rain and stuff but sometimes i would just take a risk and and send them ahead you know by by a carrier service or mail or something mm-hmm. Um, like when I was in Colombia and I was going to Brazil and I was going to go down the Amazon river in a boat and I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm just going to send these, you know, cause that's, cause I, it was going to be a lot of biking. Um, and yeah, my posters, I, I have them still, you know, I'm, I, they're my teaching tools. Mm-hmm. So, um, but besides that, it, I would just have work clothes. I'd have my hat, you know, my typical like cap that I would wear. Yeah. Um, my sunglasses and my bike clothes and, you know, a couple of books. And um,
0: As as your tour went on, did you start to get rid of things you found you weren't using?
1: No, I was accumulating more stuff. You were
0: accumulating more. <laughs>
1: <huh>? <laughs> I'm not good at getting rid of because, I mean, I carried my pillow, you know, all around the world because if I didn't have my comfortable pillow and my yoga block
2: which mm-hmm. was
1: just a styrofoam thing but it, it it you couldn't compress it i needed my yoga block and my my pillow and then i used my camping pad for my yoga mat oh
2: but okay. like
1: you know if you're going to be i'm not 25 you know i'm 56 mm-hmm. and uh, i started at 50 i started my tour at 50 and i ended at at 55 you know and if i'm gonna be you know camping every night and if you want to call uncomfortable because it's not like always the most comfortable i needed my some comfort things Mm -hmm. like i needed the pillow that actually i've had since i was like a teenager you know (laughs) the same pillow
0: i you know i'm not i'm not gonna comment on that because my wife and i (laughs) when we go on holidays i pack my thin i have this like one little feather pillow i like feather and i like them thin i don't like to have a big thick pillow and i take it with me and it's in my bag and i take it out on the airplane and i get all cozy and she's like who the hell travels with their pillow i'm like well apparently claudine does as well so i'm cool like i don't mind
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah man i've gone through so many pillowcases like i just now that this one this organic nice pillowcase i've had is finally just dead so I have to I, – I just ordered some organic cotton pillowcases that my friend is going to bring me who's coming to the next workshop. Okay. But, yeah, the pillows and then I – oh, and also my, my meditation pillow, which I got in Brazil. Um, at, that is not compressible either. There are compressible ones, but the thing is that I have multiple uses for these things. What is a meditation it, pillow? It's like a little half moon, um, very firm – pillow to, to put your butt on when you're meditating.
2: Oh, okay, I yeah. Do the, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I couldn't use my sleeping pillow cause I don't want to sit on where I'm putting my face. Um, and I didn't want to use the yoga block cause it's too tall and too hard. But the thing is that my meditation pillow also would double as like a body pillow. Like, you know, when I'm sleeping mm-hmm. sideways, I put my <laughs> top knee on it. Um, but you know, it's something that was definitely like it was on my front rack and you know you know how it is when you're biking you, you figure out your little setup you know and i don't mm-hmm. know if i don't know if you saw but someone told me recently that they saw a time-lapse video of me packing my bike
0: oh go. really no i haven't No.
1: yeah i didn't even know i guess it's on my youtube channel uh, my my brazilian friend took it of me and it's pretty cool it's the only video i have of me Packing my bike up, you know, and I would always have, so you have your little routine, like, you know, how you pack, mm-hmm.
0: right?
1: Like, pack your stuff up. Because yeah, mine was pretty quick just- order.
0: It becomes a very, very systematic routine, you know, certain bags go yeah. first and this and that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's cool. I had a couple other questions about cob houses. Um, the reason I think this is really interesting because every, not every time, but a lot of bike tours I interview, they they end their tour with this different view of the world and and they've changed and grown a lot and you know some of them go and build a small home some want to develop a, like a community of outdoor enthusiasts where they live and these things and i thought you know cob cob houses could be that other thing that some people might be really interested in and um my question is what what is the I don't know, how long do these houses last for? Like, how, What's the lifespan of a cob house?
1: Well, we I bet you a lot of people are going, what the hell is cob? So that's, I didn't yeah, even maybe, say
0: that. Yeah, what is cob? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Some people think it's like corn cobs, you know? Like, you build houses out of corn cobs, that's oh, really cool. Imagine
0: you get to eat all that corn, though. That'd be good.
1: <laughs> There's a lot of corn cobs, probably, that I could get to recycle, cycle. We <laughs> use them. So, so cob is, um, it's the oldest building material on the planet. Okay. It's basically a mixture of clay, sand, and straw, or any other fiber like straw that is long and strong. And what teaching around the world taught me was the alternatives. Okay. There is no alternative to clay and sand, but the alternatives to straw. Like sometimes I use palm tree, uh, the husk of the palm tree, sometimes mm-hmm. I use the actual palm leaves, sometimes corn leaves, banana leaves, like I, uh, wild weeds and grasses. Like in Cabo Verde, they don't have straw. They don't have like little bales of straw that you just go to the store and buy. Mm-hmm. And even, even here on the Azores where I am, it comes from the mainland. It costs a fortune. It's like 11, 12 bucks for a straw bale, which over there costs like two or three. Right. So, cob is a uh, clay, sand, and straw. And basically, um, you make, you make these like little breads. You make a big loaf of it with your feet on a tarp. And then you make it into smaller units so that you can transport it to the wall. And ideally you're working with other people and you just kind of toss it to each other. And then, you know, someone's on the wall putting it on the wall. And it ends up being a monolithic adobe wall. That's another word for it is monolithic adobe. Because there's no joints. You build a foot a day of this, you know, moist, like a dough almost. Mm-hmm. It's like a dough, um, earthen dough. And, and, uh, and then, you know, you leave holes in it so that the next day when you put your next layer on, the new cob kind of keys into the cob from yesterday. So that's how it all connects. Because, oh, okay. Yeah.
0: So There's when no when you structure. build when you build like one layer, you you like leave some little dips and dobs and, and stuff, so that when you next put more stuff on, it kind of locks it in together.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. You actually have um, you have like a little centimeter long stick that's about an inch in diameter, and you make holes that are deep enough to connect into the previous layer. Okay. So what you're trying to do is also the straw between the layers because there's tons of straw in the cob Mm -hmm. so you're actually with a stick you're pushing the straw down from this cob you just put on into the one from that you put on before so that's how all people say you don't put any wood or any like posts inside the wall but you don't need to because the structural strength is from the interwoven layers of straw that go between the layers and it's a, a shitload of straws, as much straw as the mix can hold without falling apart.
0: Oh, okay. And when you yeah. when you build a cob house, um, are the walls straight, or do they kind of curve in like an egg type thing?
1: No, the inside wall and the outside wall is tapered, okay. so that uh, the wall starts at thirty centimeters, which is a foot, where it, mm-hmm. where it um, starts at the foundation. And then at the top, the wall should be about 20 centimeters or eight inches. Oh, okay. So it loses four inches in like six feet. A little more than six. uh, Well, yeah, six feet. But the foundation inside is about half a foot. So, you know, it depends how tall your walls want to be. But it's about half an inch every two feet. Okay. Every foot. Yeah, yeah.
0: Every foot. Yeah, every foot. Okay.
1: It needs, it's like an elephant's leg. It's wider at the bottom mm-hmm. because it's very heavy. It's a very heavy material. Just one little loaf of cob which is a foot long and six inches wide and six inches tall is like ten pounds. It's it's heavy wow, material. That's pretty so, heavy.
0: Yeah, yeah, my property really my property here in Canada, go Canada go. is uh is very, very clay like soil. It'd be perfect for cob building. <laughs>
1: yeah where are you in Canada
0: um, just across the river from Ottawa in Chelsea Quebec so it's about 10 kilometers from Ottawa
1: nice I didn't yeah. know you were up there
0: I'll get Derek to come up and help me build something sometime
1: yeah Derek is really excited about it again he's, he's like really grateful that he learned and even though you know Derek and I had a, a little bit of tension because you know what I was hard on him You know, I was, I, I didn't, yeah, yeah, because, you know, I have to be like these workshops are so intense because we're building a full building in five weeks, Mm -hmm. and with students, you know, so, you know, I, I basically, I, I make them work. You know, they want to learn. They got to see what it takes to build a cob house. Otherwise, people take a year to build a cob house. You know, because it's heavy. So we, I find, I teach them like how to mainstream and be efficient in the construction. Um, but it takes a, a push of energy, but anyway, so the way that my bike ride and, and the cob workshops intertwined was that when I started my bike trip, I'm like, I need to, I can't just use my savings up. I'm, I'm going to be after, you know, three years, I'm going to be starting at zero. That's not cool. It's right. At, you know, 50 years old. So I'm like, okay, what can I do to earn money while I'm traveling? And I thought, I'm just, I'm just going to do what I have been doing, and I'm going to do it internationally. And I created a new site, um, which is Cruising Cob Global. And, uh, and then I, I, I looked on Workaway, and I looked under building and natural building, and, and I connected with this woman in the Canaries because she said she wanted a, a cob house. I'm like, look, I don't want to just come and help you build a cob house. Cause it'll take forever. And I, and I'm on a bike tour. Yeah. Um, I want to complete. So I said, but Hey, do you want to organize a cop workshop? Cause I'm a teacher. And she said, yeah, I know everybody on the Island. I bet you, I can get, you know, 20 people here. So I'm like, cool, let's do a cop workshop. Let's make a flyer. And, um, and well, I'll put it online. I have a website. And, uh, and, <laughs> We had 25 people for four days and we completed two stories of her structure in four days because in the Canaries, it's so hot and dry that the cob, we were able to build like two feet of cob a day and usually it's one foot. Oh, is that usually because because you you need to dry, right? Yeah, it dried so quickly that we're like, okay, let's just keep going. And we had so many people that, we we just had the ability to build really fast and a lot. And so that was my first workshop internationally. And it led to the next one. Cause I, I met a farmer there who mm-hmm. said, I want to do one at my place. So then we organized one at his place. But, uh but I always need like six months to like promote, to get the students because you know, it's not free. They have to pay and yeah. they have to have five weeks available and, so in the meantime, I went to Cabo Verde and Senegal and with WorkAway, I, again, I met people and I organized workshops and it started slowly, but eventually I don't have to advertise anymore. I just have a website that everybody knows and everybody knows my schedule and I don't have to, like, work hard to put the word out, you know? People find me.
0: Right. So and now you just say, I'm going to do a job at this, in this place, this country. If you're interested, let me know. And then people get in touch their own way, right?
1: No, I have a no? website. That's oh, okay. the schedule. Yeah. Like, this year we had a workshop in Chile. We had a workshop in California. We had a workshop in Colorado. Um, we're having a workshop in the Azores. Now I'm having my second workshop in the Azores um, and then a teacher training. So I had like, you know, six or seven workshops this year.
0: Oh, wow. Which one was um, Derek at? Was that Cal- Colorado or California?
1: Cal- uh, Derek was in California last year. Last year we had the same thing. We had Chile um, and we had Nevada City and Portugal. Okay. And um, yeah. So I have a website that that shows the schedule of workshops and then people just sign up
0: very neat and um you did mention that this this is one of the oldest styles of building um how do the houses fare in different types of environments like imagine canadian winter and um i don't know really rainy place versus dry places and things like that good question
1: so my son just taught a workshop in the Colorado mountains where it snows and is very cold, mm-hmm. and they decided to make half the building out of um, a technique called bale cob, which is um, basically straw bales, which are a lot more insulating than cob, and and you you build the bales like as if they were bricks, mm-hmm. and then you the mortar is the cob.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I've I've heard of um I know a friend of my dad's when I was growing up, he built a garage for his motorbike shop out of uh straw bales. So probably similar similar similar. Time for a quick interruption to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventure partners. The Bike Tour Adventures podcast is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports, founded in two thousand thirteen by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists. They've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch Aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat post paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as the main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a raceback since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Named after the animals that roamed the Tibetan Plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre-Arnaud Lemanga in 2009. After noticing a lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast website.
1: Yeah, well, it is it is and it's not. Straw Bell Building is different than Bale Cobb. Oh, okay. Because um, Straw yeah, Straw Building is, is only Straw Bales.
0: Okay.
1: um And, and Bale cob is mixed with cob. you know?
2: Mm-hmm, okay.
1: Uh, so... Yeah, but straw bales are much better for a Canadian winter for sure. Um, good insulating cob is better for temperate climates. But if you mix the cob with the bales, you know, that's probably ideal for you. If you're not doing a full straw bale building, which is pretty expensive because you need a lot of wood. Whereas with bale cob, you don't, you oh, know, you okay. yeah. you're, yeah.
0: Okay, cool. Well, let's get back to bike touring because, uh, <laughs> we could talk all day about Cobb too.
1: Yeah. Well, my website is org for people that want to check, check it out. It out. C-R-U-Z-I-N-C-O-B org. And I just want to say one more thing. Like my initial, um, mission, which, you know, you can see on my website was to you know spread the word all over the world and and spread the knowledge all over the world so i try my i try not to go to the same place twice you know like on my but i did i did i did kind of circ, circumnavigate in a circle from spain to morocco to cap verde to senegal to the canaries back to spain to morocco to cuz my mom was living in morocco so okay. i kind of this, and, and also, I, m- I would meet people who would say, I want a workshop. And then i say, okay, well, let's organize it in six months. So I'd have to go back. But, you know, my real mission is not to go back to the same country twice and do as many countries as possible so that I leave students trained in all these countries that can train other people and that can build. Um, and so when I'm in third world countries, like in Africa and South America, the locals, I really like to train the locals, especially the local builders. And they usually can't afford, you know, the prices that I, I'm i charging, yeah. northern prices. And that's where I live in the north. So that's the prices that I charge. So what I do is I charge them less, you know, a lot less. And then, you know, the northern people are paying the northern prices and they end up, you know, kind of um, – uh, what's the word so, so subsidizing yeah um the other people who the, you know the senegalese yeah, those, or, in,
0: those in need that can't afford it and at least they're learning a new skill too so you're helping to develop the country in that sense
1: so it ends up being an intercultural experience too like in senegal i had eight american and european women and eight senegalese men in the workshop and two of them ended up getting married oh wow uh, it's really cool so there's a lot of intercultural, um, you know, relationships and friendships that form that the cob bonds people together because you're like building this thing for five weeks together. So you get to know each other and it's really beautiful. That's mm. like actually the secret. Awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah. It sounds really great. I've been looking at it and, uh, it's definitely very, very interesting. Not sure I could convince my wife to move into a, a mud house, but <laughs> or that's what she would call it.
1: Um, Go online and look at images of cob houses. There's so many different styles. Yeah.
0: Well, I was thinking like build a little thing and have it as like an Airbnb or something because it's quite a popular area where we live in Chelsea with um, the Gatineau Park, which is a provincial park right beside us, and and just as that as a first experience, you know, do something like that and carry on. Yeah. So let's yep. talk about your tour. Where did you start your, your tour? You got your bike Friday and then you, you flew to Europe, I presume? Spain. To Spain. Spain.
1: Huh? Uh, I did Malaga mm-hmm. uh, to Cadiz and then took a boat to the Canary Islands.
0: Where you taught your first workshop there, yeah? Uh,
1: and then I flew to Cabo Verde. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, I organized workshops in the countries that I wanted to visit and then I would bike as as much as possible between workshops from one workshop to the next it'd be like two months in between workshops Mm -hmm. so then during that time i'd have my computer and my phone so i could be registering students and you know taking care of my life um and my business and also um seeing the countries that interest me and relaxing and writing you know i Mm -hmm. rent a an apartment for a month in Cabo Verde and get to know that place. And all the while, I'm registering students and preparing for the next workshop. Um, so, yeah, so I did Canaries to Cabo Verde, which is Cape Verde in mm-hmm. American accent. Um, <laughs> and then I flew to Senegal. And then I, I came back to Spain and Canaries and Cabo Verde again and Senegal. I did it three times. That circle. <laughs> and once with my sons who um, traveled with me through Senegal, West Africa, which was, was one of the most memorable times of my life, um, traveling with my sons by bike. So great.
0: What was that like the, um, in terms of, um, I mean, obviously great in many ways. How Was it a big change, though, to get used to traveling with your sons when everybody has different expectations possibly or things? Yes.
1: It was huge learning for me because I like to take it slow in the morning and they wanted to just get out of there as fast as possible in the morning, like have breakfast and let's go, mom. Let's get on the road. And I'd be like, dude, I got to do my yoga, my meditation. I want to do my readings and a little writing. And I I was fine starting like at 11 or 12 and they, they would be up and out by like seven or eight, which is actually what I've found a lot of bike travelers like to get out right away you yeah. know breakfast and on the road you know I like to I like to I don't know I I guess it depends on it depends on what time you get to your sleeping site and and dinner site a lot of times if if I'm getting there late I I don't want to hurry up in the morning but mm-hmm. I guess if if my kids were more like let's find our place that we're going to sleep at like four or five so we have daylight time to chill out, enjoy, make dinner. And then we start early the next morning. So I had, we had to, you know, had to negotiate. And, um...
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I'm, I'm more of the up and early on the bike type thing. And, uh, but I also don't do short days. So my days tend to be, I also tend to finish in the evening, but I guess it depends what you like. Do you like to chill out in your spot in the morning more or in the evening? So I guess, um, yeah interesting
1: how many kilometers would you do a day
0: um well it depends what kind of touring i'm doing this summer i averaged about 200 a day <gasps> uh it was there was big oh, i mean i was done. cycling using the gravel bike which had this the bag set up and stuff was much more aerodynamic and um my goal was distance so i was trying to get from vancouver to whitehorse the yukon and then as far back towards home as I could within six weeks. But I actually only did five weeks because um, just the way timings would have worked out, I wouldn't have had time to, to finish. So I flew from Winnipeg.
1: Were you by yourself?
0: Uh, most of it, yeah. Yeah. So I had some days, you know, yeah, some days that are 110 kilometers, 150. Some, I had a couple that were over 300 Uh with tailwinds in the 300? prairie. Yeah. But I mean, this wasn't a bike tour to explore culture as much as it was a bike tour to just get across Canada and enjoy, you know? But
1: did you have gear on your bike? Or were you, were you pretty lightweight?
0: Um, Yeah, I had my tent, sleeping bag, stuff, clothes, um, some tools, lots of food. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah
1: distance it's like the states you go for 100 miles and with nothing right just like
0: and how about you um when you were bike touring with your sons what kind of distance did you guys ride on a daily basis
1: it definitely wasn't about pushing it you know um i would say the high the high was would be like 50 60 miles is it miles yeah 50, 60 miles Mm -hmm. would be the high. And then sometimes it could be 25, you know, yeah, because we were, we didn't, we didn't have like a plan of like, okay, you know, like all marked out, like we're going to go here. And then the next day we're going to go here. And the next day it's like, it was completely spontaneous. You know, we'd arrive somewhere and meet some really cool people and they, invite us to eat and then we'd end up staying there even though it was just 20 miles from where we started you know um or or my son's pedal broke and we had to figure out how to weld it and go all over place because we'd go to this person and he couldn't do it and then this person and um or we liked the place and we wanted to stay for a couple days you know like Mm -hmm. I, I love that. I, so that's your, your I only tried.
0: real limitation was your next job you had to be at, but you gave yourself so much exactly. time to get there that it, it was never really yeah. an issue, right?
1: Yeah. I'd have like, you know, two months in between workshops. Um, because I, and when I, when I teach a workshop, I make pretty money because it's five of concentrated time and, and mm-hmm. income, you know, for five weeks. So. So then I can just chill, you know. I mean, I'm not really chilling, but I'm not working. Like, I'm working on the computer for, but not like, you know, eight hours a day. So, yeah, I I mean, you know, with my kids, it was amazing because my sons grew up in Santa Cruz where there's not a lot of black people, you know. And my sons have always felt like me, very connected to African, black black american culture you know and music and people and so here they were going to the roots you know africa mm-hmm.
0: and, and is this part of it because been... of your mom's connection to morocco or do you feel that that was not really no
1: no, because morocco is not really black you know it's, no, it's for, arab yeah,
0: yeah it's arab yeah.
1: no my ever since i was a little girl i had a senegalese like little playmate guy boyfriend my little boyfriend when i was like five and um i don't know i think uh, in another life i was african you know like my i just i feel real comfortable in in that in those cultures okay and uh and afro-caribbean afro-cuban afro-latin also very comfortable and my my kids do too so they it was amazing my son viva (laughs) he wanted to do everything like them so I mean, his bike was so loaded with trinkets. Like he had to buy, wanted to buy the the exact same like tea, uh, tea maker that all the Senegalese use, okay. you know. So he'd have like this tea kettle hanging on the back of his bike, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and you know, he, he wanted to learn how they do it, how they make their tea, yeah. you know, and, and how they serve it because it's a ritual, oh, you okay. know. Yeah, so for him, he wanted to be very culturally uh, integrated. So similar to like
0: the Chinese have their Chinese or Japanese tea ceremonies and stuff. the yeah. Senegalese also have a, a very specific way that they do their tea. And
1: yeah, yeah. Right after, right after they eat, it's like okay, we share a tea now, you know. And and so Viva learned a lot of of those traditions by just. Watching and being invited, you know, to eat, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, people would invite us to eat all the time, even though we had just eaten. And they'd say, "No, eat some more, come on." And many times they were very the the poor people. You know, it would just be rice, and there'd be just a few vegetables, and then you know, one fish for like five people, and they would, you know, it was. It's so. I mean, my travel experience. You know what? Yeah, I'm just realizing that <laughs> I have some great travel stories with my kids because not only did we travel by bike, I mean, Africa wasn't the first one. I took them to Tahiti and all the Tahitian Polynesian islands. We okay. did by bike. Yeah,
0: went how old were they and then? They were,
1: they were young, and but that wasn't even the first one. The first one was was Cuba, Mexico, and Cuba. I'm remember, God, I'm forgetting all that. Uh, I guess I've been focusing on my solo bike touring, but, you know, I raised my, my kids with bike touring as well. fantastic. Um, and, yeah. We did Polynesia for five months, and we'd put all our bikes on these cargo ships, and the cargo ship would just put all of our bikes in a big box, and then just pick it up and put it on the ship, and then, you know, we'd go to the next island. Um, and my kids were young. They were like 7, 9, and 11.
2: Oh, wow. On
1: that yeah, and Cuba was—they were even younger. Cuba was four; they were four, six, and eight or something. And I would take my my youngest son. I took with me behind my bike. Mm-hmm. It's that's so really cool. cool.
0: It's—I mean—it's definitely—it's um, I think the way it's—it's uh, it's what I've told my wife that I want to do when, uh, as I'm a teacher, so I have my two months off in the summer. And I said, when we have kids, I said I'm not going to be sitting around home. In the summer, I'm going to be flying somewhere and touring with my child, you know, because I want them to see the world. And, yeah. I, and yeah. it's, it's a hell of a lot more fun than getting them daycare for a babysitter for a summer, you know.
1: I remember doing bike trip with my son, Viva, when he was two. And I put him on, you know, in a seat in the back of my bike. And we went up, uh, we crossed through Europe, you know, like from uh, through Germany and Holland mm-hmm. and, and France. And he would, he'd be sleeping most of the time on the back. You know? well, it's, and then it's perfect because
0: like Europe is so good because you don't have to do crazy long days. Like There's lots of nice camp spots and they're cheap. And they, then you have that time with your child where you can play and teach them about the world and nature. And I think it's, it's awesome. It's
1: great. It's great. And when Viva turned nine, um, I went solo. Was it nine? how old is he i i did a solo trip with him when he was nine and that was the first time that you know he was uh he was biking with me alone and man he went so fast i couldn't keep up with him he was always like a mile ahead of me and then he'd just sit there and read a book and wait for me to catch up
0: (laughs) beautiful um, when you did your bike tour for Cobb, uh, Cobb, what did you, you had a name for your bike tour, didn't you? When you were bike touring with the Cobb building?
1: Yeah. Called it Global Cobb Trotter.
0: Global, that was your global, global Tr- Cobb Cob. Trotter tour. Um, did you expect it would last five years or that just kind of happened?
1: No, it was planned for three years. Okay. And the plan was I'm selling the house. I'm doing my dream of biking around the world and Three years, I'm gonna find a new place to live. Like not after three years, I'm going to the countries that interest me for possibly living, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna check them out while I'm bike touring. You know, and so I was very interested in Portugal and and Portuguese speaking countries, um, and that's where I am right now. I'm in the Azores in the Azores Islands in the middle of the ocean, yeah. um, and I came here the first time in 2016. You know, my second year of my bike tour. Um, then I came my third year and I taught a workshop here and then I came my fourth year and every time I would just sit here for like a month and just feel it out. Like, cause mm-hmm. the first time I landed here, it's like, this is it. This is the place.
0: And I'm going to tie this, it- tie this in with your conversation with Derek on his, uh, the podcast you record with him. And I remember you saying that you wanted to, your kids were going to come visit the Azores to see if they also feel like that this is the good home base right because I think you were thinking I like this place but I want to see how the kids feel about it
1: yeah so it's, it's a tough one um my two sons have come and they love it here but you know my boys are 24 26 and 28 so they're not ready at this time it seems to just drop their life and right. come here and live where I am but you know they tell me mom just chill out relax do your thing, you know, build your eco village. We will come, but like, don't, you know, you got to realize like we have our lives and we like it there, but we don't know if like, you know, they have all their friends in California Mm -hmm. or Colorado. So right now I'm just chilling. I mean, here is where I could afford to buy a nice piece of land. I'm A five-minute walk from the ocean. I have an ocean view from the land. I have fruit trees galore. I have bananas. I have guavas. I have passion fruit. And I'm not even in the tropics. This is not the tropics. Mm -hmm. This is is the same latitude as Santa Cruz, California. And so it has this nice, like, warm enough for mangoes, bananas, papayas, uh, pineapples grow here, guavas, but yet, it also has apples, pears. Like it's a really interesting climate, very productive. It's a very moist environment, which I like, um, and it's cheap as hell. It's fucking cheap, mm-hmm. you know. Like I, I mean, I buy my week of groceries for twenty bucks, twenty euros. Oh, okay, well, you know.
0: And um, yeah, and then the, and like, it's part China of Portugal, right?
1: It's part of Portugal, and there's nine islands. It's a, a people call it the Hawaii of of the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, I mean yes and no, but it has nine islands, just like the Canaries, just mm-hmm. like Cabo Verde, um, volcanic islands, you know. Uh, and so my son Jika loves it because the surf is awesome here, uh, especially in the winter. And no, he has no one to compete with because people are to the the people who the good surfers from here have left to the mainland of Portugal. So Zika and his friends come and they're like the only ones on the big waves because the other people are too scared to surf the big waves. And Viva came and he loves it too. And Joya hasn't come yet, but he will and he's going to love it. And they're just like, mom, just do your thing, set up the land and we'll be there, you know, and we'll see about, you know, they they don't want to live with mom, but I I would be happy if we were all living together on the same piece (laughs) of land. We have things in common, you know, like Viva is a, Viva teaches cob workshops now too. He just started teaching. So. I, I
0: saw that on your website or maybe it was uh, some comment somewhere. Yeah. I saw that your son was now teaching as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like, guys, we can all live on this piece of land and, 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 you know, Zika can, cause Zika's a cook. He's, he's like a, he loves to cook. So I'm like, you can cook for the workshops and then Joy can lead like the community bonding exercises and then viva and i will do the cob but you know we'll see
0: (laughs) maybe in the future yeah you know you were you were when you were cycling you were cycling between destinations and you said you kind of did this loop that kind of happened every year did it get boring the cycling between the same locations did that kind of get to you after a while or did you just find different routes no
1: no because like when i do the canaries i would do a different island you know and cabo verde has nine islands so i would I'd try and organize workshops on different islands so I would get to know the different islands, which are very different. And then in Spain, you know, like I, I taught that one workshop in Tarifa, but then I taught another one in Portugal. Um, you know, I, I would go through Morocco because my mom was there, but I also organized a workshop in Marrakech. Um, and, you know, so that I could see the south of Morocco okay. and then I biked back up to the north. Uh, I'm an Aries. I told you that, and I don't like repeating things. So I would always have to do things in new ways, mm-hmm. even though I was doing the same countries. You know,
0: what was it like cycling in uh, Morocco?
1: Good question. Um, I'm, I like cycling alone because i mean i did like cycling with my kids but it it also was very challenging because Mm -hmm. they would call me on things and you know i'd have to mom you can't just think about yourself you know you have to think about what we want to eat for dinner so i it was you know i was used to cycling by myself and doing whatever i wanted whenever i wanted and so when you travel with someone else you have to negotiate and plan together and I prefer to cycle by myself, um, and then just meet people and maybe cycle for one or two days with with some people, and then just go on. But Morocco, by myself, I was a little scared, okay. you know, because I I don't speak Arabic, and in and when you travel by bike, you're going to all the little villages where they don't speak French or Spanish, you know. So with me, my strength is my language skills, and when I can't speak the language which has never happened before in my travels so far um that sucks because i arrive in a little village and i have to do sign language you know and i like mm-hmm. to make jokes and connect with people and, you know kind of like have a connection and even if in arabic i can say a little bit you know and even if i say salam alaykum it makes them happy yeah and if i can speak a little more you know they're like oh come- come and have some couscous with us and but in morocco when i was in the countryside it was tough because not only the language issue but a a woman on a bicycle alone Mm -hmm. like it's unheard of over there i mean let alone you know forget it moroccan women you'll never find doing that but you know foreign women too would would not be um didn't do Morocco alone. Now I know a lot of women who've traveled alone through Africa. No, I don't know them, but I know about of them. them. Yeah. Out, yeah. Who've traveled alone through, you know, Arab countries and, and black African countries. Um, and that's cool. And I haven't, okay. So I did Morocco. I did from Marrakesh to Tangier, but I, you know, I was, I was a little uncomfortable. That was the first time I was ever uncomfortable. I remember being at a... I was really hot, and I was in the mm-hmm. boonies, like, out in the countryside. And I don't know the Moroccan culture very well, you know? I don't know that that the Arab, Muslim, Moroccan... My mom lives in Tangier, which is very European. Yeah. But I didn't know, like, the real, the rootsy people. And they're very nice, but when they see... And I had to be fully clothed, you know, but I wasn't going to wear like a shawl on my head and everything. So, you know, they're seeing this and they stare at you, the men, because the women are not visible. They're indoors. Mm-hmm. And so you arrive at a village and there's like 20 men standing there drinking coffee, smoking, and they just look at you. And I would just get so annoyed, you know, because I'm like, fuck, that's so rude. <laughs> you know, like just to st- Stare like that, you know, at least offer me something to drink. Help me out, you know, like take my bike up this little hill or, and they would just stare. And I knew they're not bad people. Like if I could speak Arabic. I would make a joke. I'd be like, what's up, guys? Do I have like something in my nose? Like, what's, are you staring at? Mm-hmm. You know, I would, but, but funny, you know, like I could do it in Spanish and Portuguese and German and French. But here, I I couldn't say anything, you know. So so it made me uncomfortable. And I remember being at at this bus stop because I was just tired and I needed shelter. And I I just pulled out some food. I started eating, you know, eating some whatever I had. Mm -hmm. And I was alone. And there was nobody I could see for miles, like nothing. And all of a sudden, a guy showed up. Out of the blue, like I didn't even see him coming. It was just me and him. And you know, I, I got scared. I was like, I don't know, like what, what could he do? You yeah. know, like yeah. he could steal my, like get, pull out a knife and then take my money and passport. And, and so I, um, I was eating and I just like gave him my food. I'm like, here, you want this just to distract him? And then I just. I just took off, you know. I mean, he was probably very innocent.
0: He's probably like, "What the hell just happened?"
1: <laughs> I just, I just took off, you know, because uh, I, I just didn't know. I didn't know. I don't know the culture well. After being there, you know, many times, I think pretty innocent. You know, the the Muslim culture is, is pretty safe. Uh, the thing in Morocco was I had an accident. I was like one of accident on my bike tour and it also there was a shepherd and that was it and I was on the road I thought I'd broken my arm um I slid on gravel so when you say bike gravel bike I'm like oh I don't I would never want a gravel bike <laughs> <laughs> it was raining I, it was, I I climbed 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 and I was at the top and I was ready to go down I was like yeah, now I get to go down and it's drizzling and I hit gravel and I skidded yeah and I fell on my left side and I thought I'd broken my arm and there was nobody around except a shepherd that was like, you know, a hundred feet away. And I was crying and, but he would not come over to me. And I was crying and I was obviously hurt. And, you know, all my stuff was like, had fallen on the side of the road. He would not come and help me. And I was like, I hate these people. They're so mean. They're so rude. You know, I was, I, and he he was just telling me to call the police and to call the ambulance, to call on my phone. And, but he said, police, police, and he's showing me his phone. And I was like, dude, I don't even speak Arabic. Like, you, why don't you come over and help me? You wouldn't come close to me. And cars would drive by, and I was, like, obviously hurt, you know, on the mm-hmm. side of the road, my bike with my bags falling everywhere and they would drive by and they would not stop and finally i stood in the middle of the road you know and if so car had the next car had to stop because i blocked the road right and and i went up and i showed my arm and i'm like ow ow uh doctor doctor and and the guys they were like they wouldn't come out And eventually, you know, I found out and realized that it it was like they were scared because I was a white woman and they were scared to talk to me because they were scared to get in trouble by the police, you know, who who would, who might think that they were trying to rob me and the Muslim religion, which is, you know, married men don't talk to other women who don't have a veil on their face, you know, or who are not fully clothed with like a long, long, you know, maybe I was wearing a T-shirt that day. I don't, anyway, so finally I just, it's a car, I just cried and, you know, forced myself to cry and, and they finally got out of the car and they barely helped me put my bike into the back, you know. they. I'm like, help, like this is heavy, I'm, my arm is hurting. It, it was just like they were not nice, you huh, know.
0: Very strange, yeah
1: only place on the whole planet you know where that such 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 a thing you know existed for me in my whole bike tour like everywhere else people would even if I wasn't like dead on the side of the road people would stop and say hey do you want do you want me do you want to ride you know and throw your bike into the truck and we'll help you out even if I wasn't asking for it you know so eventually I went you know they took me to the next village and the only woman, uh, who could speak French was a pharmacist. Thank God. And then she got me a ride to the main town and I went to the hospital and that was a little bit of a nightmare, but I had basically fractured my shoulder blade.
0: Oh, wow. You actually did. Oh, huh? wow.
1: Yeah. Well, going to the hospital, I got x-rays and three different readings from three different doctors. One said that I was fine. Nothing was wrong. The other said my clavicle was fractured and the other one said the shoulder blade okay strange so I ended up you know staying in Esawira in a hotel for like a week and then I started biking even though I wasn't healed yet you know biking with like you know whatever a a sling on my left arm and just barely able to hold my um handlebars but I biked up the coast all the way to Tangier and that was safer you know the coast was safer and I really wanted to bike into the you know, villages of Mm -hmm. Morocco, but there's no way to, I would do that alone. You know, again,
0: interesting. How many countries did you bike to, um, throughout your tour?
1: Um, I think it was 18, 18 countries and 25 workshops or something like that.
0: Oh, wow. Did you
1: ever, yeah.
0: Did you ever have any other major challenges such as Morocco?
1: Yeah, I was, I was robbed, um, in Cabo Verde and Colombia and Brazil. Uh, These are, I don't think we have time for these stories. They're great stories and, and they're on my, um, blog, the global Cob Trotter blog. But I was robbed, um, by my phone and my computer in Cabo Verde. Wow. Got him back, got him back 10 days later. Complete crazy story. Um, robbed in Colombia just on the road I had stopped for a drink to drink my water bottle and out of the bushes a man ran and and took my phone off of my bike which I stupidly had on my bike like on a whole you know mm-hmm. one of those phone holders I had just come from the states so I, I wasn't thinking clearly like no you're in Colombia now you don't yeah just still phone- still
0: in western <laughs> mode
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> I I recuperated my phone and then in Brazil I lost um my backpack uh in a it was nighttime raining. I had tied my backpack with all my goods, my important stuff, on the front of my bike and it had slid off and I didn't know.
2: Oh yeah. And
1: I I and like an an hour later when I went back picked it up. Amazing. And it had my passport and all this stuff that you know, all my personal stuff. But it didn't have my my phone or computer, which was I had put in another bag. Okay, but it was all there. It was just full of mud and and car tire tracks. And the guy where I was staying, I was using um, warm showers. Mm-hmm. He was like, "Are you crazy? You're not going to find that. This is Brazil. Your your backpack is gone. You left." On the, on the road, in the rain, like, it's gone. And I'm like, I don't care. I've recuperated two stolen, two, two you know, my phone and my computer twice. I'm going to go. And something about, like, when you're determined, you know, like, the universe is like, wow, she's really going to go for it. Okay. We're going to help her. Because I rode in the rain against traffic at night in Brazil. Wow. Huge, huge ours to find it and um <laughs> I, found- <laughs> I think you have really good luck and, and
0: for the most part
1: i did the cabo verde story was crazy because for 10 days you know they had stolen my stuff a computer and phone I, I got robbed like right you know mugged whatever and uh and the, i told the police and the police was like yeah okay we're gonna look we're gonna look and half the people said you'll never find it and half people said you'll find You'll find it. Don't worry. The police will help you. And I, and it was the last day. I had to leave the island because I had a flight scheduled, you know, from another island. So I had to take the boat. And I went to the police. I'm like, dude, it's been 10 days. You still haven't found the thief. I can't believe it. You said you would find the thief. and the, And the police was like, I said, I'm leaving on the boat tonight. And, you know, I'm really sad because my computer, it's for my business and my phone. And I can't talk to my kids. And they're like, they're like, are you, you're going on that boat that's going to, to uh, Santiago? I'm like, yes, I'm taking the boat because I have my bike. I need to take the boat. I don't want to go on the plane. They're like, well, the thieves could possibly be on that boat because we're pretty sure that they're not from this island. We're pretty sure that they're from the island that you're going to. So, so they're like, we're going to come and just, you know, verify. So, so, um, I got to the boat place the cops were nowhere to be found um, and i was in the in the in the um waiting room you know waiting to get on mm-hmm. the boat and uh, and when i had gotten robbed it was like, it was nighttime but there were still lights you know and all i saw were the backs of the two guys a little guy and a big guy and an afro the little guy had an afro and that's all i saw and in this waiting room comes in a a little, you know, with like five suitcases and we lock eyes and I'd never seen their faces, the backs of their heads and their sizes, you know, we lock eyes for like 30 seconds. I'm like, some, and there was a message going, your stuff is in those suitcases, your stuff is in those suitcases.
0: So they had suitcases full of all the stuff they'd robbed from people basically?
1: Well, that. That's the end of the story. I mean, that I was like, I can't accuse him. Like, I can't go to the police and accuse this guy. I'm going to, what if my stuff's not in there? I'm going to look so bad. I can't, like, not enough. It, 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 no, no, no. No. I don't know if it's him, you know? But it was mm-hmm. strange. So I'm on the boat, and, you know, the boat's about to leave, and those same five suitcases were still on the dock. It could be this guy do you recognize this guy I, go, I don't know I, I didn't see a face but like yeah, maybe it could be I don't know and it looked like the police the, the picture the police had showed me mm-hmm. and uh, and it's about to leave and the captain is standing next to me and he's like, are you okay? I'm like yeah but you know I'm a little sad because I draw, see the police and he goes, no I think the police is out there but they're in disguise. And, um, and I, and I say to the captain, I go, why isn't that guy coming on the boat with those five suitcases? Why is he just standing there on the dock? And the captain goes, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't have enough money to get on the boat. And right at that moment, the boat had already pulled up the, the ramp. You know, it was like really getting ready to go. Yeah. And right at that moment, that guy jumps on the boat. And right when I was telling the captain, like, you know, I was I was robbed the police was guy jumps on the boat and walks right behind me and the captain and and walks into the captain's quarters and looks inside and the captain saw him. and he's like that's weird man cuz don't say anything I'm going to call the police and then the guy leaves the captain's quarters and jumps off the boat again and in the meantime the captain had called the police the police had come and they're frisking him and they're making him open the suitcases and he's like what did i do i didn't do anything what, what's going on here why you got and everyone on the boat is looking and i'm like mm-hmm. shit shit what if it's you know they're, i'm gonna look really bad right now i don't know if you know this is all because of me and <laughs> and and right when right when they're like making him open the suitcases that little guy with the afro comes and takes the little suitcase on top and starts running. And then the, the police calls the other police guy to get him. And then the police looks at me and tells me to get off the boat and to come. And I'm like, oh, and everyone on the boat is looking. And the, and I go, I tell the captain, don't leave. My stuff is on the boat. You can't leave, okay, because I need to come on this boat. And he's like, don't worry, just go, go. So I come down and then I'm the tall guy and I are walking to the police station and the tall guy's looking at me and he's like, what, what, what what are you looking at? You recognize me or something? Like, why are you looking at me like that? And I go, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. And so we walk to the police station and then now the little guy with the Afro is handcuffed and they're, they're slapping him. And I'm like, "Oh fuck!" I'm right up to him and we, lock eyes again the same guy and they're like what's the combination of the suitcase and he's like I don't know I don't know and they start hitting him and so he finally tells them and they open the suitcase and they're pulling out cameras and iPhones and phones and all of a sudden I see this like green flash going by which was the color of my laptop case and I'm like my laptop that's my laptop and i grabbed it and I like kissed the ground and I go thank you God and I was I couldn't believe it I'm like thank you thank you God and I was like I was like but my phone where's my phone and they like slapped him them where's your phone he's like I sold it they're like oh we're gonna find that phone don't you worry and, and they grab my laptop they're like you can't take this we need to take pictures and we need to you know do it. I go but I I have to go on the boat and they're like well we'll send it to you and I'm like, I have to leave on a plane in two days. He goes, don't worry. We'll get it to you in two days. We'll send it. It was crazy. And I finally got to the capital, and they gave it to like some random person on the plane. They gave my laptop and they got my phone back. It was completely erased. And I gave it to the person and I had to meet them at the airport and I got my stuff back.
0: Wow, that is nuts.
1: I told you I wasn't going to tell you the story, but once I start, I can't
0: stop. <laughs> That's really good. It, I can't believe you got it.
1: I can't believe it. So, so, and the phone got stolen twice. So I got it back in Colombia also, also, you know, amazing. And, uh, also a good story, but I don't want it. I don't want, it's like already.
0: We saved that. We saved that one for another time.
1: Yeah. Can you tell
0: us about some of the beautiful experiences before we go? So instead of just talking about the bad things, uh, what are some of the, some of the beautiful experiences you've had?
1: Oh, there's, so many so many so many way more ex- good experiences than bad experiences uh, uh how about like going down the amazon river mm-hmm. um not with my bike obviously but my bike was on the boat and uh, in a hammock for 3 days with like you know i don't know how many other 50 to 100 other people in hammocks um and just you know after Biking through Colombia, which is very challenging, I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't like it so much. It's very steep, no bike paths, lots of stinky cars, and um, I got to rest in a hammock for three days on the Amazon. Like
0: that's cool. I had
1: no idea what that would be like, but that was how I got to Brazil, which was where my next workshop was. Oh I wow! Took a, yeah, I took a plane actually from because you can't you can't drive or bike. To the headwaters of the Amazon in Colombia, you have to fly to Leticia. Um, and that was cool. I never thought I would hit the Amazon, but I ended up, yeah, in Leticia, which is, um, no, Leticia is the Colombia part. Um, I forgot what the Brazilian part is, but I ended up staying there. And that, that was, that was pretty special being like, in the Amazon and then going down the river and seeing all the little communities. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then I hit Manaus and then took another plane to Recife and biking down the coast of Brazil was phenomenal. Phenomenal Recife to Salvador, the easiest bike ride ever, like very light ups and downs, very light, mostly the wind behind my back. Amazing fruits along the side of the road. I, I, people said, Oh no, you can't camp by yourself in Brazil. A woman, you're crazy. You'll get killed. I camped almost every night. I would just, I would do it, you know, intelligently. I would yeah. be like, hello everyone. I'm going to be sleeping back there with all my belongings and my camera and my, you know, I, it would get dark. And then I would just like quickly, like no cars were going by. I would like quickly sneak into the bush. But, you know, it was a little risky with, like, snakes and things Mm -hmm. like that. But I had my tent. and I love Brazil. Um,
0: It's cool because a lot of people don't bike tour Brazil. Like, you hear about a lot of people cycling Pan America. And they cycle through, you know, the more countries. And they they tend to skip Brazil. And I think it's so big. There's got to be so much cool stuff to see.
1: Oh, Brazil is great. I love Brazil.
0: yeah because a lot Um, lot of people go through like colombia ecuador then down into chile and you know like bolivia maybe and then you know so or sorry peru and then bolivia and then into chile and that's kind of the route that a lot of people do but i think um brazil gets skipped a lot
1: that's too bad because the coast of brazil is very diverse too like you know the part that i did was was pretty flat, but gorgeous beaches, you know, so many beaches, beaches to mm-hmm. camp on. You know, if, if I didn't want to camp, there was, you know, a lot of warm showers hosts. Um, and I felt very safe in Brazil. Oh, awesome. And then, you, yeah, then you get to the lower parts, you know, as you approach Rio and all that, but it's absolutely gorgeous. And then you, and then you hit Uruguay and Argentina you know, and I did Argentina also by bike, um, when I taught a workshop in Chile. Um, but, uh, I really enjoyed getting the top to the top of the Pyrenees. I did three peaks and, um, in one day, I think, maybe not, I don't remember. Um, beautiful beaches in Senegal. The cool thing about biking through Senegal is that the the Senegalese are scared to be outside at night in okay. nature. So my kids and I, when we just camp, we'd be alone. There'd be nobody, you oh, know, else
0: well, the night would be all yours. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If you're in the nature, like they don't, they, they say that there's, you know, bad spirits come out at night. So you, you need to, you know, not be outside okay. at night. If you're, you know, like in nature. Um, yeah, uh, that was beautiful. Uh, I love biking through France. Like France is my heart country. You know, I always feel at home there and just so many, you, you know, you're, I didn't, I did not like the Basque country at all of Spain. Okay. No bike uh, cars going really fast, very steep and unfriendly people. Besides the Moroccans who are not unfriendly, they're just scared. The Basque, I'd be like the
0: Basque region is like the north kind of part, right? Yeah.
1: North of Spain. Yeah. Like I would arrive in a village there or in a bar or whatever. And I'd have like my, my bike and bike packs. And I was so used to people going, ah, oh, where'd you come from? You know, where are you going? Where are you headed? And you know, sometimes even inviting me for a drink or whatever. In the Basque country, they look the other way. They don't even care. They don't hmm. ask you. It's bizarre. They're very unfriendly. And, and maybe it's cause, you know, I'm an outsider. Like, it's weird. Um, but yeah. The south of the U.S. was really nice too. Like Alabama and Mississippi, I've heard Louisiana. Good things, yeah. Very, very nice. Very nice. Um, yeah. I mean, Tahiti, Cuba. I haven't really done Cuba. I was with my kids so we didn't we didn't do a whole bunch, but I'd like to I guess I'd like to end on saying where I'd like to cycle
0: Cool, yeah, let's hear it. where what's next. what's next for you.
1: Well, I wanna um hit the Caribbean in February and March. Um and I'd like to do Cuba. I'd like to cross the whole island of Cuba.
0: Yeah, that would be Have really you sweet.
2: Denver?
0: no i haven't been to cuba um i know there's a really good blog uh, i think i have a link saved that gives like a really good route through cuba um so i could i could shoot you that if i can find it
1: oh nice yeah yeah the thing with cuba they probably don't do warm showers there i guess which i really i love warm showers warm showers is great.
0: yeah there, there might be something though um I know a few people that have toured there, so I've heard good things.
1: And then Puerto Rico, like just, uh, you know, the other islands there, Puerto Rico, Haiti, Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. Like that was besides the Azores, that was like really where I wanted to be. Like I thought I'm going to end up in the Caribbean. This is like where I I feel most at home, you know, culturally. Um, But then I just never ended up really checking it out because i thought oh it's going to be super expensive all these american tourists mm-hmm. you know and and the hurricanes too you know hurricanes so mm-hmm.
0: how many languages well, do we, you speak you did mention that you spoke a fair few
1: i do i speak i speak french spanish portuguese <clears throat> italian german <clears throat> and i studied a hell of a lot of languages more i studied russian arabic thai turkish and Chinese and that's I'm studying Chinese. Very cool. Yeah, I, I love languages. That's that's me. Yeah, you know? if you get I'm if you la- get
0: that Chinese down, I think you've got pretty much the whole world covered with languages. You could pretty much go everywhere with the little Russian. <laughs> yeah. If you have the Russian, Spanish, <laughs> French, and English and Chinese, Arabic, yeah. you're set. You're set.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. And it's funny cuz something I saw was that the Chinese um they're all over the place. And they're always the owners of the 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 stores that have everything. Everything mm-hmm. you need. Um so and and they learn the language of whatever country they're in. So when I would be in Cabo Verde, they would speak the local dialect. And now here I'm in the Azores and they speak Portuguese with Azorean accent.
0: Oh weird. Wow. In,
1: Africa, in Senegal they were they would speak Wolof. You know, like they They integrate, Uh, they integrate, they don't integrate culturally or personally, but they learn the language so that they can sell more stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, like one thing I do when I bike, and obviously a lot of people probably have their own, like, you know, I'm biking alone for like five hours a day, six hours a day. I have my music, of course, but then I would also learn, I would do my Chinese classes, Mm -hmm. you know, in my... In, in, my, in my earphones and then I would you know I'd go into these places and I'd speak Chinese to them and they'd be like oh they'd be so happy you know first yeah. they were shocked and then they'd be happy um and it always gets me good deals you know oh yeah you can have that for free no problem
0: <laughs> if people want to do do want to follow your blog or are interested in cob building where can they find you
1: the website is org. perfect are you dot global.org and the blog which i haven't written in a while is global cob trotter on blogspot
0: okay blog? and blogspot. you have some youtube content as well right
1: yeah and that's claudine desiree Um, is the all all the videos of the workshops are there i do really fun you know little videos during the workshops of the student building and dancing and stuff
0: yeah and um in the event like let's say okay well let's let's use me as an example but in the event that somebody's interested in in experimenting with building a cob structure but you know they can't make it out to to the Azores or California or to a workshop is there is it possible to to learn on their own or is there information that they can gather packages they could buy to learn how to, to do some of these things
1: not really it's really something you have to be
0: you have to experience it
1: you have to experience it you can't say okay the mix is ready when it's kind of like this or that or you know it's about feeling touching, You know, looking at different Mm -hmm. soil samples, analyzing, it's, it's not, it's impossible to learn with a video.
0: It really is. Good. That's what, that was a question. Seriously, I I was wondering, and probably many other people that listen to this might be wondering. All right. So if they're interested, they can look into a workshop or maybe uh, even try to set up a workshop in there. For instance, do an invite and have you or your son or somebody come to Canada here and build a workshop, right?
1: Yep. We have, you know, right now I'm, I'm training, uh, my advanced students, uh, to become teachers, you know, so I don't, obviously I can't, I can't, um, do all the workshops that people are requesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to, you know, try and just do like a couple over here and then you know, a couple outside of the Azores, but I'd like to go to new countries that I've never been in. So I might be doing Zambia next year. Oh, cool. But I am trained, like my son is teaching now, and I'll probably have two other students teaching next year. So there will be more workshops that I will not be teaching, but there will be more workshops. So
0: awesome. Well. I will, uh, I will definitely post links. And if people are interested, they can reach out to me or you. And uh, if they reach out to me, I can redirect them. And uh, I hope you're safe and well and wonderful. And um, to all the listeners, keep on peddling and all the best.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. This has been great. I really enjoy speaking with you. I can't believe it's been two hours.
0: (laughs) I know it flies. I told you, Claudine, you know, once you get talking, it just kind of goes. Claudine, thanks for being on the show, and uh, I look forward to getting Thank this you. edited up and posted.
1: Yeah, and obviously let me know.
0: I will it's, definitely. It's a- okay. All the best. Have okay, a good night. take care. Bye. Hey, everyone. Before we end this podcast, I'd like to tell you about some of Bike Tour Adventure's other amazing partners. I'm very proud to be supported by Brockton Cyclery, a Toronto-based bike shop dedicated to bike touring and bike packing. Carrying many of the top bike touring and bikepacking brands, I can honestly say that they have helped me to build the most durable and fast bikepacking bike possible. We're also supported by Race Day Fuel. Their mission is to ensure that you consume the very best and appropriate food and beverage for the task at hand. Working with top brands such as Scratch, Noon, and Untapped, they have all your nutrition needs taken care of. For discount codes, check out the show notes or go to the Bike Tour Adventures website. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated and keep on peddling.